All right, so to start it off this morning, how many dads do we have in the house? Keep your hands up. Amazing. Okay. Uh, we tried to figure out what the best gift we could give a dad was this morning, right? And so we, we had some really good ideas like ammo, axes. It, was there anything else on the list, Kyle? What's that? Hiking boots. Um, but, you know, we settled with something just a notch beneath that. Uh, in, in a few minutes, we're going to have 100 Popeye's chicken sandwiches here for all the dads. So uh, they're, they're on their way. So you guys can partake in a nice chicken sandwich this morning. Anybody ever had a Popeye's chicken sandwich? I mean, they're glorious. You might as well sleep through the whole service this morning and just get that sandwich on your way out because it'll make it worth it. Um, yeah, so those are on their way, and if there's any left over, you know, the moms and kids can eat too. But this morning, we just care about the dads, so I'm really sorry about that. Um, actually, I want to pray for the dads, though, so if all you dads would stand up. And I spilled coffee on my pants this morning, so please don't think I had an accident, all right? <laughs> it's coffee. Uh, before we pray for the dads, something I, I want to both encourage you guys and challenge you guys with this morning and I spent a decade of my life basically on the road with a bunch of skateboarders, 90% of which were all fatherless um, boys, like teens. And um, most of the time on the road was spent discipling and trying to be a dad to kids who weren't raised in homes where dads actually took their position in the home. And, um, and so I want to encourage you guys this morning with three things. One that what you do has significance. Like it shifts the needle radically in our culture when you invest in you loving, when you invest in your kids, you love, in your, love on your families. Two, I realize that some of you in this room have a lot of regrets maybe for some things you did as a dad and wish you could go back and do that. And this morning, I also want it to be a reminder to you that it's never too late. Some of the things that I think I'm learning as a dad is that Humility and confession go a really long ways. And sometimes what our kids need more than anything is just a dad that's willing to say, I didn't have it figured out. I'm not perfect. I made a lot of mistakes. Would you please forgive me? Can we start over? Can there be a redemptive side to this relationship? And I want to encourage you guys this morning that God is using you. He's using you. Like the hand of God is upon you for the work that he's called you to do. So let me pray for you guys. Jesus, I thank you for each father in this room. I thank you uh, for their sacrifice. I thank you, Jesus, for their continued investment, Lord, in their homes, um, in their families, and their kids. I pray this morning, Jesus, though, that they first and foremost would know that the only reason they have any strength to draw from, any love to draw from, any patience to draw from, anything of significance to give to anybody else is because of your love, your patience, your great sacrifice for us. And so this morning, we really turn our attention to our Heavenly Father, and we thank you, Jesus, for being the best example for us. And I pray this morning, Lord, that we would walk by that example and begin to be men that would just love on, lay our lives down for, sacrifice, invest in, be the first to um, confess our own sin and be authentic and transparent and men that just care deeply about 
the families that you've entrusted us with. So bless them today, God. May their hearts be just overcome with joy and gratitude for all that you've bestowed upon them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Appreciate you guys. Can you give the guys a hand, maybe? Yeah. All right, so we're, we're jumping into the last text in this, um, this short study in the first couple chapters of Acts that we've been in the last few weeks. And this one's really, it, it, this is a significant passage. Um, one of my favorite texts, probably, in, in all of Scripture. And I want to do something, and I want this to be as quick as possible because I don't want to take too much time. But as we get into this passage, I, I want to sort of frame this conversation for you a little bit. What, what we're doing in this room this morning where you're sitting in these rows and you're all facing me to hear from me is not how it was done in the first century church. And, and I need to start there this morning because what you need to understand is um, if we were to all line this room in a big circle and we had somebody that would come forward and sort of begin to teach and then there was opportunity for like question and response and dialogue and an opportunity to be shaped by somebody else's thought and to actually ask questions, have them answered, help like dig through doctrine and do this as a community, that would be the format that we're talking about. And so please understand, like by no means do I want to get into this text and be like, what we've done as the American church is we've just ruined it all, you know. There's significance in what we were partaking of this morning. It's not necessarily like it was in the first century church, but I also don't know if it's possible in our culture to reenact everything that we see in the first century because culture shapes us so much. And we need to begin this process of moving back to really what the Holy Spirit is wanting to teach us about what true community, what, what, what it looks like to be the church, the body of Christ, how, what it looks like for us to function in this the way that God intended for us to. And so as we dive into this passage this morning, um, many look at this passage and think this is sort of the blueprint for what the church should look like. This is sort of our marching orders. This is what Christian community should look like. And it's interesting to sort of get into this passage, a passage like this, and realize that so many people have taken this passage and really tried to make it prescriptive uh, for the church today. But I don't really think that's how it's written, that it's necessarily written to be a prescription for us. It is, however, meant to be something that's a description, descriptive of how the first century church functioned in the first century. It was written for the intent that we could learn from them, that we could be challenged by this, that it would actually shape what it is we do and our perspective on what it actually means to be the church. But I, I think that we go awry when we begin to take this passage and then turn it into like our four-point mission statement in a culture where none of what's mentioned here is practice in our culture outside of Christ. And it's really interesting to get into this text and realize we're talking about things that, that there's parts of this because of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit and the depth of the work, the rootedness of what the Holy Spirit is doing in these people and bringing them together. There's parts of that that are, that are significant and it's miraculous what God's doing. But you also need to understand that the Jewish culture the things they're talking about in here would have been a part of their culture already. Now it's just all of a sudden in the name of Christ. Like there was something they got about family. There was something they understood even with regards to prayer and community and what it looked like to be actually a community of faith. 
And I think that we're 2,000 years removed from this. And on the other side of this, we live in a culture that's all for ourselves, like so isolated, so individualistic. Everything is always about us and what we can get out of this. And so we've turned church into these rows that you sit in. And, the, the, and it's this transactionary experience where you come sit here and I try to get something from this instead of looking at every person in this room in the eye and saying, like, we are the body of Christ. We are family. Like, the Holy Spirit has actually brought together a bunch of people that shouldn't be together, that it doesn't make sense to the world that we are united in something because we are so different. But we find Jesus and his Holy Spirit to be the glue that brings us together. And so in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, it's a sort of description of the life of the early church, what it looks like to be a Christian, or we could even say that their practices were sort of signs that, that the message of the gospel had literally cut them to the heart, as we talked about last week. And with that, I think that where it gets difficult then is then I start wondering, like, if the gospel of Jesus has actually cut us to the heart, as, as it says, they're pierced to the heart through the, the sermon that, pre, that Peter gave prior to this passage, then why aren't we devoting ourselves to these practices as well? My question. If they're cut so deeply to the heart that the Holy Spirit begins to move them in these things, then why aren't we being moved this way as well? And this passage really is the Holy Spirit describing for us the, the manifestations, like the outcome of God's message of salvation gripping a, grip, a group of people's hearts. And so as we work through this passage, my prayer isn't that we feel guilty, but my prayer is that we actually examine our lives, that we examine our hearts, which I feel like we should do whenever we open up the Word of God, shouldn't we? Examine our hearts in light of what the Word of God says. So if you'd turn with me to um, Acts chapter 2, and we're going to just read verses 42 to 47. It says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. Many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I just invite your Holy Spirit to come this morning, Lord, that you would do this work in us. I pray, God, that we could just lay aside all the junk and um, the confusion from our week, the things that we're sort of wrestling with and dealing with in our lives right now. And we could turn our attention on you this morning. I pray, God, that this text and what you have to speak through it this morning would really shape us as a church. And as we move forward as a church, God, that we begin to look at these elements and really begin to question how it is we put these things into practice. What does that look like in our church in Coeur d'Alene in 2022. And so I pray, Jesus, that you'd sort of remove all the forms and the models of church that we have, the structure we have built up in our heads, and we could actually see it for what it is, Lord. The church, not within this building, not within the walls, not a building, but a group of people that you have brought together 
that you've redeemed and reconciled and called out, Jesus, a group of people that you have saved and that you've actually released into this world by the power of your Holy Spirit to be the salt and the light. And so I pray this morning, Jesus, that you'd move uh, through your text to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I think that if we truly desire to be the church, like if we truly desire not to just attend church or be part of the church, but to actually be the church, then we sort of have to look at some of the elements spoken of in this passage and ask God to strengthen our desire and our devotion to these things by the power of his Holy Spirit. So we need to let the good news of his gracious love and, and the good news of his acceptance through Jesus cut to our hearts afresh this morning. The, the description given here of the early church, again, comes on the tales of Peter's sermon that we talked about last week at Pentecost. Uh, we talked about this. Because of Jesus' life and his death, his resurrection, because of his ascension, God's kingdom plan to heal the world of sin and evil and make it his dwelling place once again is actually back on track. That's the, through the work of Christ. And so that's the whole purpose of his kingdom coming to earth is to give us this glimpse of how God intended for things to be and a glimpse of how God will restore everything to be one day. And we see that start to be put into motion here in the first century church. And so here's the harsh reality, though, of the gospel, and we talked about this last week, that there's no such thing as good news without understanding what the bad news is that the good news relates to, right? And the bad news is, is that we are sort of co-conspirators in, in the evil that's destroying God's world that he created. That we're sort of working in that. And, and so when we resist God's kingdom, we, we reject and we crucify the Messiah, right? That we reject and we crucify King Jesus. And that's basically what Peter said in his sermon last week that we read through at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. Peter tells these thousands that are standing there that they crucified Jesus, that they literally allowed this to happen, yet God raised him from the dead, and now God offers them redemption. The same people who are responsible for participating in this evil act that was destroying God's creation we're now being offered forgiveness of sins through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the work that Jesus' community cultivates. That's what's happening through the church on this earth. Redemption, reconciliation. We're proponents of that. We're peacemakers. We're a people that actually bring a new flavor to the earth that the earth is not used to. No other religion is centered around a figure that literally sacrificed and gave his own life to restore and to redeem and to save the people that he both created and that he devoted his life to. Just Jesus. So let me catch you up with where we're at in the book of Acts. Last week we ended with this section of Acts chapter 2, 37 um, up to 41. It says this, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then we jump into 42, and they devoted themselves. 
all of this happens. They're cut to the heart. 3,000 souls saved, and they devoted themselves. So this past week, I spent a ton of time online, like researching um, this word devotion. Like, what, is this, what does this word mean? Like looking up every stat I could find on Americans and commitment, and I wanted to see what is it that we are devoted to, right? Like, what is it that we are committed to? Like Americans, what, what do we find ourselves committing ourselves to, devoting ourselves to? And what did I find? What I found was study after study showing how significant of commitment issues that Americans have. Over and over again, 32% of people in committed relationships are not convinced that the person that they're committed to is the one that they'll stay committed to forever. 32%. 49% of Americans are discontent in their jobs. 21% of American workers took a new job in the last year. 40% of those who, are, who took new jobs in the past year are actively seeking other employment. And as you read specifically about, and this isn't a slam against the millennial generation, like I want, I'm a Gen Xer, you know what I mean? So I, I get to remove myself from this. But every generation in here is responsible for something. And it's really interesting. I mean, millennials always get this bad rap. Really, they're a byproduct of other generations that missed it. Um, so the finger just points back to the prior generation. But it skips Gen X, right? Because we, we did everything right, man. It's like Nirvana, 90s music. I mean, like, the alternative scene. I mean, it was the perfect era. Um, but if you read specifically about millennials, this is really interesting. And why they say, researchers, psychologists say that commitment is so hard for them, here's some of the reasons that they give. One is it's a swipe culture, is what they say. Right? If you don't get that, then you're probably too old. But nowadays, with all these dating apps out there, they're finding that, that, that people are starting to look at real relationships in terms of swiping left or right. Like, if you don't like who you have or, or what you have, then swipe left or right for something new. That's becoming commonplace in people's lives. Second is abandonment issues. What you grow up experiencing is what you actually project on your future relationships. So you, your experience as a child radically shapes your outlook on future relationships in your life. So if you had this parental figure in your life that walked out on you as a child, then you begin to fear that others are going to do the same thing that that person did to you. And so you begin to live your life with this fear in mind that people are just going to abandon you. If you had a parent die as you were a child, then you fear that you're going to continue to suffer the loss of relationships for the rest of your life. Like what you experience as a child continues to play itself through. And, and so we live in sort of fear of what we've experienced in the past and an expectation that it's just going to continue to happen again. Third thing is shallow partnerships. These are the three things that they say reasons why commitment is so hard. Shallow partnerships. Only one in 10 millennial marriages are surviving after 10 years. 10%. So the, the constant lack of emotional connection that exists today 
is a significant reason why there's this fear of commitment. Like relationships today do not, they, they, they lack depth. They do not have substance. And, and this isn't just marriage relationships. Please understand, this is relationships across the board. We don't get it. We don't understand how to have real relationships because all we know is surface level stuff. We don't allow ourselves to go deep and really take in what even Jesus intended for us to extract from the relationships that he places us in. And, and I'm sharing these things with you guys just to open up your eyes to the problem that exists in our culture today before we even get into this passage. Because we as a society do not even have, like, even understand the word devotion because it's not in our culture. It's not in our vocabulary. It's not anywhere. It's, it's a watered-down word. I did a wedding two days ago, and one of the things I said in the wedding is, this word love is so interesting, right? Like, we see it in 1 Corinthians 13, like this whole description about love. But then in the same breath, we can say things like, I love the weather, and I love my job, and I love chocolate, and I love my car, and all these other things, and yet love is the word that we use to describe those. Love is also the word that we give to the person that we are committed to. And so when it comes to devotion, we, we run this risk of watering this word down so much that we don't really understand what devotion actually means because to us, it's just another swipe left or swipe right word in our vocabulary. Use it, dish it out. If it doesn't work this time, then I'll find something else. And what's hard is that, like, it's hard for me to get to a passage like this and talk about devotion and actually have us understand the, the depths of this term, this phrase. Because we live in a culture that can literally shift devotions in an instant. If something else is offering us something greater, then we would ditch the thing that we said we were devoted to, that we were committed to, to move on to the next thing that's offering us something in that instant, only to realize when something else comes along, I'll move on to that next thing. Honestly, to, to get radically honest, we do this with churches all the time. We bounce from place to place, like we do relationally in life, like we do with jobs, like we do with our cars, with everything, because commitment lacks substance in our culture today. We don't get it. Whatever can give me what I want in that instant is what I will give my devotion to, but that will change as soon as something else comes along the way that's better or that offers me something greater. And so this passage today starts with, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. You have to understand the depths of this word devotion. Like Luke's words in verse 42 are, are very connected to the whole situation in the passage above, verses 37 to 41 that I read. He says, because of what happened, like literally because of being cut to the heart by the Spirit's work, through the message that Peter gives, they devoted themselves. And this word devoted, or this term, actually is in the Greek, it's actually continually devoting themselves. It's a phrase. And it's presented in the Greek like, as this very strong word. The, the word isn't meant to be cavalier. It's not meant to be like, uh, uh, it's not a hobby. It's not just an interest. It's not something lackadaisical. It's actually often a word that's used in relation to marriage in the Greek language. And in the Old Testament usage version of this, 
Um, it, it's actually a phrase that represents sort of Israel's wartime tactics against their enemies, right? They were devoted to wiping out their enemies. They were committed to it. They were going to see that thing through. And the idea is that they gave themselves entirely, like in constant diligence, to do something with intense effort and with the possibility of difficulty. That's what it means. Knowing that there's difficulty, potential difficulty, they continually devoted themselves to this. And this became the, the, the all-meaningful purpose of the first century church's lives. A devotion to God and a devotion to one another. These people, they didn't have to be guilted or coerced to be part of the church or to get together for fellowship. They met daily as often as they could. They were consistent. They were driven. They were motivated. They were dedicated. They were devoted. But here's the reality, is that when your sin becomes personal and you take responsibility for it in your life, like the moment that you sort of met Jesus and you realized, my goodness, I have a lot of issues in my life, and I desperately need a savior. I, def I desperately need somebody to forgive me of the things that have separated me from God. And the minute we realized that it was our sin that took the king of glory to the cross, it was your sin that brought about your separation from the Father, and that the Son of God, Jesus himself, had to give his perfect life in order for us to be redeemed, and that we are so loved that Jesus was willing to do this for us. This really is when the truth cuts to our heart. It's really when the truth becomes very real to us, right? The truth cuts to our heart, and we become willing to devote our lives to him because of what he's done for us, and that's what's happening in this passage. The Holy Spirit is cutting to their hearts, and as they realize their need for Jesus and that he was who he said he was, and as they accept Christ as their Lord and Savior, and the Holy Spirit comes into their lives, the manifestation, the way that that plays out is devotion to something that they couldn't conjure up on their own. That's how it happens. They couldn't do this on their own. I mean, that's why when, when, as a pastor, so often, like, what I step into is relational conflict all the time. In marriages, between friendships, it's all the time. And it's why we always stand in a place where we say, we believe God can bring unity to the worst off situations, that by his power, like, that's just the work that Jesus does. And we stand with people and we believe that. We fight for unity. We commit ourselves to one another so much so that when a wrong is done against us or there's significant hurt or resentment or bitterness that exists in our hearts towards somebody else, that we do the hard work of working towards Jesus and seeing unity actually happen that can't happen on its own, that it has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. And what's taking place here in the book of Acts is a work of the Holy Spirit. It does not make sense. Many of us, me guilty of this as well, we treat our Christianity, our Christian lives, as sort of a commodity. And so we're, we're adding it to our already busy lives. So Jesus is something that when we engage him, when we find out about him, when we decide to commit our lives to him, it's like, I have all this stuff going on in my life, and now I get to add Jesus to it. 
So it's my whole life and Jesus. Like he's just a new hobby that I've taken on, right? Until the next best God or thing comes along the way that I want to devote my life to. Right now, Jesus seems like the next best addition. But for so many of us, he isn't our life. Like you aren't scrapping everything to just devote your life to him. You're saying, I kind of want to, Jesus is the cherry on top of it all. And you travel to third world countries right now where people are devoting their lives to Jesus and they're leaving families behind, they're leaving jobs behind. They're risking their lives to commit their lives to Jesus. And the minute they step into the waters of baptism, they're literally written off by every friend, every family member in their lives because they devoted their lives to something else. That's not just them saying, I'm going to add Jesus to Hinduism. So I'm, I'm going to be a Hindi and a follower of Jesus. They're saying, I'm actually getting rid of that whole life as a Hindu, and I'm committing my life to Jesus, and the reason their families are abandoning, abandoning them is because they're turning their back on everything they were raised in to devote their lives to Jesus Christ. And that's significant. And we live in this culture where we just add Jesus to it. He isn't our life. He isn't our identity. He isn't necessarily our purpose. We love him for now because he's meeting our needs. But when things get hard, we'll actually devote our lives to something else that can make us feel better in that moment. And so question this morning is, what is your driving purpose? With what or whom do you identify with this morning? What are you devoted or committed to? Because Christianity will never work for you if you take it like this. Like, in fact, you will probably be disillusioned by Christianity if you treat Christianity like this. If it's just kind of in addition, it's the cherry on top, it's not my whole life, it's just something I'm adding to my life. Because Jesus intended for it to be everything to you. It's either everything to you or it's nothing at all. Like C.S. Lewis says, Christianity of false is of no importance. And if true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important, is what C.S. Lewis says. Paul the Apostle said this about his life. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by, the faith, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what is Paul saying? Like, in short, Paul's saying, my whole life is now Jesus. Every aspect of it is now Jesus. So what are they, de what are they devote devoted to? Verse 42 gives us four things. One, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers is what it says. So I want to I talk through each one of these real briefly. First thing. Uh, it mentions, is the apostles' teaching. So the apostles who were there, the apostles were people that actually witnessed, saw Jesus. They're there, and they're the ones that now begin to teach others, to disciple others, to train others in the way of Jesus. So what is the teaching that they're giving to these others that are brand new converts that didn't necessarily walk with Jesus? What's their teaching? And the simple answer is this is that their teaching is really the life of Christ. Like, that's the apostles' teaching. They're, they're telling the Jesus story 
again and again. They're teaching all that Jesus had taught them about the law and the prophets and the Psalms, that everything that they once knew as Jewish kids actually came to fruition in Christ himself, that he actually was the Messiah, the Messiah about how all the promises of God were fulfilled by Jesus, and they're available only through Jesus. So you have to come through him. They, they taught that the Old Testament was Christocentric, right? That, that everything they knew about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, actually pointed to Christ. He was the fulfillment of it all. And so they taught that the Jesus story actually meant practically living their lives as this new community around Jesus called the church, is what Jesus called it, the church, the body, the, the ecclesia. And so they're obsessed with Jesus. Like the, the Jesus story moves their hearts so much so that they cannot get enough of it. And so how were they devoted to the apostles' teachings? Well, it, it became the ultimate source of truth for these people. Like it was the anchor, right? They committed themselves to it. They, they taught by it. They, they were transformed by it. They, they allowed it to inform every aspect of their lives, which is something that we fail to do so often. Jesus can speak into certain things, but there's certain things that I want for myself to make decisions on, on my own. Jesus doesn't inform my whole life. He only gets parts of my life. Again, that's that whole method of like Jesus being the cherry on top, but not being the actual banana split, you know what I mean? So the apostles' teaching, how, did they, how were they devoted to it? When it comes to this issue of biblical authority, as we would say, there's no middle ground. Like, either you believe the Bible is God's word and that it has authority over your life, or you believe that you have authority over it and you decide what actually is true and what you can take and what you can leave. And what needs to change in your life doesn't necessarily change because you don't look at truth as the word of God, the thing that actually challenges you and shapes you and molds you more and more into his, his likeness, his image and likeness. And so either the Bible is the authority or you're the authority is really the question. Like, which one of those? It's either the Bible or it's you. There's no middle ground. But to be devoted to the apostles' doctrine, to their teaching, to the scriptures, means that it becomes the number one source of truth the number one source of influence in our lives, like by way of the Holy Spirit. And so it has to become the greatest influence in our lives. It has to become for us more necessary than even daily bread that we eat for our stomachs. Like if we're to be formed by it and transformed by it into Jesus' people who reflect salvation offered to us by Jesus Christ, his goodness and his wholeness, then we have to allow his word to shape us. And so why were they devoted to it? Very simply because of what Luke already told us in the book of Acts, that they had been cut to the heart by the story of Jesus. Like the story of Jesus had so captured their hearts and their minds that they were so enamored by his love and his grace and his humility and his power. This well-known author said, in him we shall discover a mind that loved his own creation so completely that he became a part of it suffered with and for it and made it a sharer of his own glory and a fellow worker with himself in the working out of his own design for it. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, they saw the glory of God, the fullness of his grace, love, and truth in the face of Jesus Christ. They saw everything in Jesus. Jesus constantly had and Jesus still has this effect on people 
right? People heard him. People listened to him. Like, think about the people who Jesus healed as he walked on this earth. Think about Mary Magdalene. He delivers her of seven demons. And what do we see with her? She's literally there at his crucifixion. She's the first that he appears to afterwards. She's the first to go and tell everybody about his resurrection at the very, uh, after he rises. Like, this woman stays with him through the whole thing. Why did she do that? Why was she so committed to him? He delivered seven demons from her. There was something of substance and significance that Jesus did in her life that caused her, cut to her heart, and caused her to devote her life to him and walk with him forever. Think about the, the road to Emmaus story. It says, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And says this, They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Like the Jesus story gripped people's hearts. It gripped their minds. Like to them, it was the ultimate story. They wanted to know more. They wanted to hear it again and again. They wanted to find their soul identity wrapped up in it. And then the next thing he mentions is fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. This Jesus story wasn't something that they just sort of subscribed to intellectually. Like it wasn't just like information for them. It actually became this way of life. It was something that they practiced. Like Jesus is later described by Peter as one who was anointed by God, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Like their lives literally became marked by bearing one another's burdens. How crazy is that? Like, they made sure that no one lacked anything within their fellowship, within their community, that no one considered anything their own, that there was no need. Like, that those that had the ability to step in and meet somebody else's need, they met it. Like, when the gospel cuts to the heart, you have a whole new way of looking at other people. No longer do you look out for just yourself. No longer do you look out for just your own interest. Why? Because God did not look out for his own interest in, for us. But actually, he made himself, the one who had it all, who was all, the creator of everything, took it upon himself as a slave, humbled himself, took our sins upon him, was nailed to the cross, and in fact, David says in the Psalms, like, he lifted us out of the pit, out of the miry clay of sin. And death. He set our feet upon a rock, is what David said. Like it was Jesus who did this work. And it's so easy for the church today to only look after themselves, like to point the finger at even other social classes and begin to judge other people like they're there because of what they did to themselves. They've sort of earned that place. Like I worked hard for what I have. There was something about the community of faith that was being built here that did not see those lines. <laughs> That they begin to look at the needs of others within the community and say, like, I have, and they don't. And so what does it look like for me to provide for those that don't with what I've so richly been, breath, been blessed with? Third and fourth thing is the breaking of bread and the prayers. Um, I think we've sort of lived in this day and age where we've, like, abandoned liturgy, right? Because in America, we despise anything that's formatted in the American church. 
Like, we just don't want it. It's too traditional. It's too old school. However, the first century church had some liturgies. They had some forms to what they did. They had forms of worship and prayer and communion. Like, for, him, for them, literally rehearsing the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus to one another through breaking bread, through communion, through songs of worship, like, taking full advantage of Jesus' work, like, that was important to them. Like, think about it. When we sing these songs together, even this morning, as our worship team leads us in song, like, these songs, we're actually proclaiming something. We're testifying something in what we're singing to one another. We're testifying of God's goodness and his faithfulness. Hopefully, we don't sing those songs if we don't actually mean them. But we sing these songs to testify of his goodness and his faithfulness. And so the bread and the cup, when we take communion, we're literally rehearsing again and again what Jesus has done for us, that, that we cannot be reminded of this enough. C.S. Lewis, as he reflects on the Psalms, he, he writes about, about how human joy is, is incomplete until we share it with somebody. And he says this, he says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because we, the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is, it is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected, unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with, with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, but we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify, and commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. And this is what we're doing when we come together and we worship, like we are this morning. We're singing back and forth to one another, like the beauty of the one that was actually broken for us, like his body broken. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like, I had this crazy thought about this this last week, that we're literally stirring up joy in one another when we come together. Like, how amazing is that? That as a church, as we come together and we proclaim Christ, that we're literally stirring up his joy within one another. And then notice, too, in this text that there's this reference to prayer, but it's not to prayer. It actually references the prayers. And most likely what he's referencing is the Psalms, or at least prayers that were taken from the book of Psalms. And so you, you, you see uh, over the next five weeks, we're going to have five different people teach on a different Psalm. And you guys are going to see over the next five weeks how ultimately these psalms are chocked full of Jesus and point back to Christ. And what a neat thing that the first century church was actually singing, praying these psalms and continuing to re-remind each other of what they knew and how Christ was the fulfillment of that and the sacrifice that Christ made for them and then take communion together and realize the significance of that and that every time they come together they would take communion and continue to remind themselves of his body broken and his blood shed for them. But in prayer specifically, I think there's something more to what they were doing. Because I think they were taking full advantage of the finished work of Jesus. 
right? He had ascended to the right hand of the Father. He exists forever and ever to intercede on our behalf to the Father through Jesus. And we literally have the ear of our Father when we begin to pray. We literally have his ear. Like the king of the universe, we have access to his power. We have access to his resources through prayer. Like to see the kingdom advanced and, and then read what happens as a result of the Holy Spirit leading God's church in this way. It says, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. And then it says, and awe came upon every soul. And many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had what? All things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day attending the temple together, which is really interesting to me, that they continue to attempt, attend the temple every single day. Like even when people want to give the argument, like you don't have to go to church. Well, there was something significant about them coming together in the temple. There's actually something significant about what we're doing. Is the format totally right? No. But there's something significant about the multitude of Christ's body coming together to worship him. They attended the temple together. They broke bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what was the result of the spirits leading in their life? Their hearts being cut, the spirit moving in them, they begin to devote themselves to these things, and then what's the result of that? Awe comes upon their soul. Signs and wonders begin to be done through the apostles. They have favor with all the people. The Lord adds to their number day by day. Those are like people are getting saved. And what's significant is that their deeds, like as a community, the things they did actually displayed the good news of Jesus to the rest of the community. Their, their words explained the good news. The, the Jesus story was actually lived out by them. The Jesus story was being proclaimed in their everyday lives. And isn't this our great desire as the people of God? That the good news of God's great rescue and his love would be put on display through the things that we do together. That the world would see Jesus in us and through us. And that God would add to his community of redeemed people daily as we begin to walk in obedience and make him the centerpiece to what we do. I'm going to ask the, the worship team to come up. We often throw around words like revival. Who wants to see revival? And we, we throw around words like renewal. Who wants to see renewal? Like we want to see these things happen in our day. But these things will only happen as the church reclaims its understanding of this radical rescue of God in Jesus Christ. That's how it's gonna happen. Like when this becomes the thing that we're truly devoted to and the thing that we're literally living our lives for, that's when revival will happen. That's when renewal will actually take place. So, questions for you. When was the last time that you sat and read about Jesus and what he did for us? And this isn't to guilt you. I want you to think about these 
When was the last time you sat and you read about Jesus and what he did for us? When was the last time you sat and thought about the sacrifice that he made for our sins? Like, just sit, you and him. Ponder the gift that he's given us, the sacrifice that he's made for us. When was the last time you got together with a group of believers and shared your favorite portion of Jesus' story? When was the last time you just rallied together with some friends who were Christians and said, what's your favorite part about the life of Christ? What just gets you so stoked? I mean, like, what gets you up every single day and propels you to live this life for Jesus? What is it that you're just so excited about? When, when was the last time you got together with friends simply to worship Jesus together? We do a lot of, like, hey, you want to have dinner? Let's get, let's get together. Let's talk about jobs. Let's talk about life. Let's talk about politics and all the crazy crap going on in our world. Like, let's just get together and just shoot the breeze. When was the last time we had an intentional relationship where we sat down with people that we know love Jesus and said, can we pray? Can we worship? I think that this is the church that's to be. This is the church that God intended for. A people who are literally obsessed with Jesus' story. And I hope that we like the church in Ephesus that's called out in the book of Revelation, have not lost this. Because what was the claim against the church in Ephesus in Revelation? That they'd done all these things for his namesake. But he had one thing against them, that they had abandoned their first love. That they turned their backs on Jesus. And so this morning, can we ask that the Lord would do this in us? that he would reignite something, that he'd give us his perspective for his church, that what you grew up in, how you saw it, you know, as a child, whatever, what, however watered-down devotion means to you or commitment, that Jesus would sort of renew and reshape our perspective on the significance of his church and what commitment and devotion actually looks like in a world that tells us something totally different. And I pray for us that we would live into Jesus' story. That we would invite people to rejoice in the story with us. That we would reclaim devotion in our culture today. Amen? That, that we would show people that it isn't some watered-down word that means until the next best thing comes, but rather from here until eternity, this is my life's mission to commit and devote my life to Jesus Christ, every aspect of it. Amen? Would you guys stand with me? their commitment has waned. That they've literally put so many other things before Christ that Jesus has maybe become merely a cherry on top in your life, but not the whole thing. And if you're here this morning, I want to pray for you. That he'd reignite something in your heart this morning. That he'd remind you that his sacrifice 
was so significant that it wasn't just to be the cherry on top, but it was actually to convert and transform your whole entire life, that you would have a different worldview, that your heart would be devoted to him fully, that every relationship you step into, you would ask the question, how is Jesus engaged in the relationship that I'm in? How is he Lord of my life in every facet of my life? And if you're here this morning and you just feel like that's waned, commitment in your devotion that maybe you once had has taken a back seat as life has ramped up and you've allowed it to take over. Would you raise your hand this morning so I can pray for you? Keep your hands up. Like, I really appreciate your boldness. And every person that's around somebody with a hand up, I want you to put your hand on their shoulder this morning and we're going to pray for them. Jesus, we thank you for those that are calling out this morning and just asking you, Jesus, to reignite their passion for you, their devotion to you, their commitment. I pray, Jesus, that you do the work of changing their hearts and their minds, God. I pray, Jesus, that right now they just feel lavished by the grace and the love and the forgiveness of Jesus, that though we have this tendency in our life to allow our hearts to wane and to kind of walk away in seasons and just to become lackadaisical in our lives with you, I'm thankful, Jesus, that as we turn to you and we ask you to step in and your Holy Spirit to renew, to ignite our passion for you, I pray, Jesus, that you do that right now by way of your Holy Spirit. Come into each person this morning. Just come, Jesus. Have your way with us. And Jesus, as we leave these doors, might we be reminded that the church isn't contained to four walls, that those are the, there's a few hundred in this room. There's thousands outside of these walls that aren't here that need to hear the goodness, the faithfulness, the mercy, the grace, the forgiveness, the kindness, the compassion of the Most High God. And I pray as we leave, God, we would take the responsibility with us to be the proclaimers of this good news of people that will walk this out, of people that will live their lives radically shaped by the gospel of Jesus, not people who will live religious lives just doing the right things and checking off the boxes, but people that allow your Holy Spirit to take over. Would you change us and transform us? God, would you have your way within us? And I pray for our church, Anthem Coeur d'Alene, right here, right now, 2022. Ignite our hearts for you, Jesus. Get rid of complacency. God, may you get rid of the gray area. May you just light us on fire for you, literally, Jesus. Renew and reclaim all that the world has stolen. I pray, Jesus, that your church would just be salt and light. It would be the city on a hill that can't be hidden. I pray, Jesus, that your hand would be upon each individual in this room as we leave here today. We just leave here with gratitude and thanksgiving that literally the, the God of the universe, like his spirit resides within us and we get to be carriers and proclaimers of that every day, every hour, every minute of our lives. Bless this church and these people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.